It's as if when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you get placed onto a new parallel map with a new God-willed career, a new God-willed spouse, country, car, house, socks. I mean, it can get ridiculous. This fascination with the idea that God has a mysterious blueprint for my life that he's not telling me about and, and the possibility that I might step off it, thus ending up with second best. Ironically, this idea has me at the center of it. You know, we might say, well, I just want to be this in the center of God's will. But really, what we mean is, I just want to be the center of God's will. We don't want to be slightly off-center because it might mean hardship or bad things for us. And we conveniently forget that God might actually want me to go through some difficult times for my good. Now, amongst non-Christians, this idea that God has a will for your life in the sense of an individual plan for you is met with skepticism and outright rejection. Do you remember the movie, The Adjustment Bureau? The members of the Bureau, these mysterious men wearing coats and fedora hats, have the purpose of keeping people physically on track with the, with the plan. You know, they've got to meet their designated spouse. They've got to keep going in their designated career. And when somebody strays from the plan that the chairman has made, they are manipulated back on track and everything carries on like clockwork. Now when the hero of the story fights against it, the chairman relents and rewrites the plan because obviously what the chairman really wants is people to make their own decisions because they know what's best for them. And then, in almost complete contrast to both of these ideas, is the fatalistic approach that's prevalent in parts of our host culture, where God's will, inshallah, is often an excuse for not having to be true to my word. I even read on a shopping center this big sign that says, Opening soon, inshallah. (laughs) Not sure if I want to shop there. So, what does the Bible say about God's will? Well, the Bible speaks about God's will in two different ways. First, there's God's will of decree, and then there's God's will of desire. Now, God's will of decree means that what God wills will happen, and what happens is, is according to God's will. So an example of this is in Ephesians 1, verse 11, which says, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's God's will of decree. And then then there's God's will of desire, which refers to what God has commanded, how he wants us to live. Now, like we saw last week with the word faith, the context of a passage tells us how the writer is using the word. But there's one more. In his book, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, Kevin DeYoung describes this more recent way of thinking, the blueprint way of thinking about God's will, as his will of direction. 
which is not a way that the Bible speaks about it. And Kevin DeYoung says, Trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. Waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. It is bad for your life, harmful to your sanctification, and allows too many Christians to be passive tinkerers who strangely feel more spiritual the less they actually do. But because we have confidence in God's will of decree, we can radically commit ourselves to his will of desire without fretting over a hidden will of direction. Well, in our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is using the phrase God's will in the sense of God's will of desire. His commandments, which, oddly enough, give remarkable direction to our lives. So let's have a look at it. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll begin from verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, just as you've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through, it, through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an angel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So last week, we saw that Paul's central message to the Thessalonians in chapter 3 was believe in the truths of Christ 
so that you may stand fast in trials till he returns. Well, today, Paul's central message in chapter 4 could be summarized like this. God's will for your life is increasing holiness in the hope of Christ's return. You can find this sentence written on page 9 of your bulletin, as well as the three points that will form the outline of the sermon. So the first is God's will. Second, increasing holiness. And third, hope of Christ's return. So our first point, God's will. In verse 1, Paul, Silas and Timothy begin what in their minds is the final section of the letter. Having just urged them to stand fast in their faith, in these last two chapters, they're doing what they can towards supplying what is lacking in their faith. He's They're instructing them in how they are to please God. That is, how to obey God's will of desire. Well, what is God's will of desire? Well, it's not supposed to be difficult or hard to understand. He's made it nice and simple for us right there in verse 3. God's will for your life is your sanctification or holiness. Well, that's the end of the sermon then. If only it were that easy. You see, holiness is not some spiritual state that we achieve or an ethereal aura that surrounds a person. There's no halo floating on top. Holiness is living in response to the truths of Christ. It's extremely practical and it shows itself in physical actions and choices. And we know that because the first thing that Paul says and draws our attention to in verse 3 and 4, is that you avoid sexual impurity and untamed passion by controlling your physical body. You know, sexual desire can be a powerful force in a person's body. But when it's not directed appropriately and restricted to the context of marriage, it can result in significantly negative consequences. You know, the very nature of lust means that it's never fully satisfied. It's always hungering for more. It's a black hole of desire that with an ever-increasing capacity, left unchecked in a person's life, lust leads to self-destruction. How can you know if sexual lust has a hold on you? I think the most obvious sign is if you've lied recently to cover some circumstances where you were engaged in some form of sexual impurity. Lying, whether outright or telling just half the truth, is a clear indication that you're ashamed of it and you would rather someone not know about it. So perhaps you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but you haven't told anyone at church. Perhaps you found yourself addicted to looking at images online and instead of asking for help, you've learnt how to get access to blocked websites and to erase your browsing history. Lying to cover up sin is a sure sign that you're held by its power. But on the other hand, the lie that is often believed is that our sexual sin doesn't really affect anyone else. But take notice of the warning in verse 6. Sexual sin always affects someone else, 
even if it's private. Be warned, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. But holiness, on the other hand, recognizes that sexual desire is a God-given gift and it finds its greatest fulfillment and expression within the context of a loving and lifelong committed marriage between man and woman. Within such a relationship, there's no need for lying or covering up, only mutual care and affection. So holiness has a bearing on our physical conduct. Well, we also see the physical nature of holiness in verse 9, where holiness shows itself in practical caring and brotherly love. You know, it seems that if there was one thing that the Thessalonians were good at, it's how to care for one another. They not only cared for each other in their own church, but it overflowed in their care for Christians throughout Macedonia. Now, brotherly love here refers specifically to the kindness and affection towards other Christians because we're now brothers and sisters in Christ. But don't for a minute think that that means the Thessalonians were expressing this uh, soft glow around the edge kind of love. Remember, they were facing severe persecution. The brotherly love they were demonstrating would, would have looked more like taking the hit for your brother or tending their wounds. It would have been the inconvenience of housing a displaced family. Or in the case of Jason in Acts 17, the extortion of a large sum of money by evil men. Holiness means practically caring for your brother or sister in Christ. Well, in verse 11, we also see that holiness means we don't go looking for trouble. But instead, we humbly trust God in our circumstances, even if those circumstances mean persecution. That's what it means to aspire to live quietly. A deep confidence and trust in God's will of decree that shows itself in obedience to his will of desire. It means I humbly recognize that God is sovereign and what he determines will happen. So I obey him, even when my circumstances are difficult. Well, it also means that we avoid laziness and living off the benevolence of others. Instead, we work hard to earn an honest living. So holiness is extremely practical. It means avoiding sexual impurity. It means caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it means trusting God in our circumstances. But I wonder if you've been asking yourself, what's the point of all this? I mean, why is Paul telling the Thessalonians, urging them to be holy? Well, the simple answer from verse 3 is because it's God's will. You know, unless we walk in holiness, we won't please God. That's true, but there's something bigger at stake than the possibility of not making God happy. It's God's glory. And it's display among the nations. Did you see that there in verse 12? The purpose of all this is so that you may walk properly before outsiders. That is, that your practical holiness, lived in obedience to God's will of desire, might be seen by others. Maybe you noticed that as well in our reading this morning from Leviticus 19. 
you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Israelites, God's chosen people, had a specific purpose of being sanctified or set apart so that they would represent the Lord to the other nations. When we begin to understand holiness in this way, it changes our perspective on it. Holiness is not a begrudging list of duties. It's a privilege only given to those people who carry God's name. And a privilege only made possible through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the privilege of representing Christ to the world. So let's apply this. Let's consider how holiness is a privilege in the areas of, that Paul has been addressing us on. Upholding sexual purity in your life is not God trying to prevent you from having a good time. It's your Lord giving you the privilege of bearing his holy name before others. Practically speaking, that might mean changing your living situation so that you're not even open to the accusation of sexual impurity. If you're courting someone, but you're weak in this area, it might mean getting married sooner than you had originally planned, so as to keep sex within the boundaries of marriage. If you're dating someone, it might mean avoiding being alone together late at night. The exercise of brotherly love is also a privilege. So we don't complain when we're asked to help out. But we're willing and ready to set aside our own agenda for the day in order to represent Christ to the world as we care for a fellow Christian. And perhaps more than anywhere, the work place or, or school, if you're a student, is center stage for living out God's command for his glory. Yes, they are watching. Yes, they will be looking to see if what you say measures up with what you do. But remember, we don't obey the Lord to please man. We obey to please God. That's what verse 8 tells us. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. So be honest. Work hard with utmost integrity. Don't be vindictive or spiteful toward colleagues who mistreat you. Instead, Treat them with respect and make sure you're doing your job well. In all of these areas, there's, there's difficulties, there's struggles, but holiness is not about convenience or ease. It's about bearing God's name to a watching world. Be holy because the Lord our God is holy. So God's will is that we would walk in ways that please him. That we would be holy, the down-to-earth, practical, involving hard choices kind of holy. A holiness that reflects his glory to the world and a holiness that is the privilege of our calling in Christ to bear the name of the Lord and to represent him. But how holy do we have to be? Well, that's our second point this morning increasing holiness. In his book, Worldliness, uh, which we have on our bookstall, C.J. Mahaney reminds us of the story of Demas. Demas was on fire for the Lord. 
He'd been radically changed by the gospel and everyone could see his passion. In what seemed like a God-ordained moment, he had met a man named Paul whose zeal for the Lord was appealing to Demas. Now, it wasn't a surprise then to his parents when he left everything and he joined Paul and his companions to take this message of the gospel all over the known world. What excitement, what a thrill, adventure, challenge, seeing people saved, demons cast out, and others healed. Demas was having the time of his life. But by the time Demas arrived in Thessalonica, there had been another radical change in his life. You see, Demas wasn't there to proclaim the gospel. He was pursuing other interests. He'd grown out of his youthful zeal for the Lord and he'd moved on to other things. Paul wrote about Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What happened to Demas? Where did his zeal and passion go? Well, he hadn't lost it. It had just been redirected. Demas had been slowly lured in by the world. Over time, his conscience began to dull. Sin didn't grieve him like it once did. The initial excitement he'd felt had faded out. Does any of this sound familiar? And if you think back to when you first became a Christian, or when you first became part of a church that preached the gospel, do you remember the excitement you felt? How does it compare with now? Have your affections for Christ grown dim over time? Has your excitement for church involvement and and service lessened, giving way to a rationalized, moderate approach? What happened? Well, there's a good chance that, like Demas, you've gradually stopped pursuing holiness. Oh, no, it's not serious, you say. It's just a busy season at work. Okay, so I'm, I'm not reading my Bible as much as I used to, but I'm fine. I, I'm still attending church. It's not like I've given up on God or anything. I'll get back when you know things change with work and stuff. But brothers and sisters... If this describes you, you are not fine. The world's tide only moves in one direction. You're either actively swimming against it in pursuit of holiness or you're slowly drifting away with it. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what's the antidote to slowly drifting away into worldliness? It's to swim upstream in increasing holiness. And Paul knows this, which is why he's urging the Thessalonians not to be content with a little bit of holiness, but to increase in holiness. So in verse 1, he says, Please God, just as you are doing... And do so more and more. And again in verse 10, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. It's just like we saw last week in chapter 3, 
the direction of a Christian is that of increasing belief in the power of Christ and his ability to overcome even the most entrenched patterns of sin. Increasing holiness is the outworking of an increasing belief in the power of Christ. That power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is the power that's at work within us through the Holy Spirit, enabling and empowering a lifelong journey of increasing holiness. So verse 8 says, Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's the power at work in us. It's the Holy Spirit. So when you exercise your belief in Christ's victory over sin and seek to please him with your choices and actions, the Holy Spirit is right there alongside you, enabling you and empowering you to do just that. But perhaps the most useful tool in our belt when it comes to the pursuit of holiness is an examined life. Take time each week to think about your responses to different people or different situations. Look for patterns of response and ask yourself, what does that tell me about the desires of my heart? Does your use of non-work hours reflect an intentional and increasing desire to please the Lord? If you're single and looking to be married, do the people you're attracted to encourage you towards holiness or draw you away? If you are married, ask yourself if the decisions you're making for your family are leading your spouse or children towards increased obedience in the Lord. Students, do you go along with whatever your friends do at school, even when you know it's wrong? Or do you care more about what pleases the Lord? So the point is this. Take time to examine your life. Ask for the help of your spouse or brothers and sisters in Christ to do that. Like invite them to speak into your life and tell you what they see. As you do, it will help you identify early signs of worldliness and help you to consider more carefully how you can increase in holiness through your life. God's will for your life is increasing holiness. But what if it's all meaningless? What if I get to the end of my life and find out that increasing holiness has just been a big waste of time? Well, that leads us to our third point this morning. God's will for your life is increasing holiness in the hope of Christ's return. Paul's been urging the Thessalonians to obey the Lord's commands more and more, but nothing brings the need for increasing holiness into sharper focus than the return of Jesus Christ. Now, in his time with the Thessalonians, it seems he'd not been able to cover everything about Christ's return. The expectation of those first-generation Christians was that Christ would come back in their lifetime. Paul's repeated phrase, we who are alive, in verse 15 and 17, certainly suggests that they expected his return immediately. And in some sense, so should we. 
So when some of the brothers or sisters in Christ died before he came back, a niggling fear had crept in. What if Jesus came back and he only took those who are still alive? Oh, that would be terrible. I mean, their life, and possibly ours if we died before he came back, would be meaningless. What despair. All that persecution faced. The property stolen, reputation and income lost. All for nothing? Paul says, no. It's not all for nothing. Be encouraged. Take hope. Christ is coming back. And he then proceeds to fill up their hope of Christ's return in three different areas. So first, he says that Christ's return fills us with the hope of resurrection. How do we have confidence that Jesus is coming back? Well, apart from the fact that he said he would, it's because he rose from the dead. So Paul says in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. He's conquered the power of death forever and has gone where no man had ever gone before. He went through the gates of death and came through victorious. There's nothing stopping him from fulfilling his promise of coming back. Well, that's why the Thessalonians, and that's why we can grieve the physical death of his saints with hope. It's the hope of resurrection. See, Christ's resurrection means that upon our physical death, we'll be united with Christ completely for all eternity. Notice how Paul describes that process in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, or in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And look at the authority with which he comes in verse 16. He comes with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. This voice that spoke the universe into existence will come in full authority over death and command the dead in Christ to rise first. Physical death is not the end. There is hope of resurrection. So what does that look like? How do we grieve with hope? Well, if your family or friend was a Christian then you remind yourself of the truth that not even physical death can separate them from the love of Christ. We have hope that one day we will see them again. Just as Paul describes in verse 17, we who are alive, who are left, and will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. But as you remember that, don't feel like you have to suppress the feelings of grief in order to appear spiritual. Remember that when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. He knows your pain more than you know. 
We can't even begin to imagine the pain that it caused the father to look away from his beloved son as he hung on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The separation that you feel from your loved ones in death is but a small taste of the separation that the father temporarily experienced from the son. A a separation that meant we will always be with the Lord. So weep and grieve fully. It reminds us that death is not good, but that Jesus has overcome it. But what if a family member or friend has died and to your knowledge they never repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ? How can you grieve with hope then? Well, the grief is certainly different in that case. There's no second chances for that person. So it's thoroughly appropriate to cry out to the Lord in sadness, grieving the eternal loss. But we can have hope, not necessarily for the salvation of that person, but that their death may in some way remind others of the certainty of death and lead them to hope in Christ. If you're hearing these words this morning and have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, in his death that covers all of your sin and his resurrection that brings new life and forgiveness, there's still time. But don't delay. Do it today. Christ is coming back. When he does, he will either come back as your judge or as your saviour. What that hangs on is how you have responded to him now. The second way that Paul fills up their hope of Christ's return is with the hope of meaning in life. Christ's return counteracts the despair that life is meaningless and that their suffering was without reason. So when you face injustice and are wronged by others in life for the sake of Christ, remember it's not meaningless and that when Christ returns, he will bring justice. Verse 6 tells us, The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Now, when you read that verse, if it makes you wonder if the Lord will come back with a team comprising of a man dressed in a high-tech iron suit and a blonde man with a hammer and a few other strange-looking creatures, think again. The Lord needs no one else to do the avenging for him. He alone is the bringer of justice. And the Lord in his wrath is far more terrifying than a bulked up man who's been exposed to radiation. But not only does Christ's return help us to see that justice will be done, it also gives us hope that as we strive to increase in holy living, it will please God. The eternal reward of of pleasing God and hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, as we enter into eternal and ever-increasing joy. Those things will make all other losses 
seem like nothing in comparison. So as you think about the choices that you're currently making in life, career, spouse, lifestyle, spending choices, what role does the return of Christ have in helping you make those decisions? Does it even cross your mind? Knowing that a life of increasing holiness lived in light of Christ's return is what pleases God, how will it impact your decisions in the small and seemingly insignificant areas of life? See, remember, life is is lived in the mundane moments. So if his will is not a consideration for you in the small things, then they won't be in the big things either. Consider Christ's return as you make decisions. Well, lastly, Christ's return fills us with a yearning for holiness. You know, I'm, I'm getting older. Not that you can tell. But that doesn't automatically mean I'm getting holier. I must pursue holiness with the help of the Holy Spirit. But you see, as I increase in holiness now, tasting some of its sweetness, the joy of following Christ, it gives me a deepening hunger for the holiness that I will receive when Christ returns. A holiness that will no longer be tainted by the presence of sin and the drawer of the world. Do you remember that back in chapter 3, verse 13? that Christ will establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. As Christians, that's where we're headed. If I'm filled with the hope of Christ's return, then my life of holiness, of increasing holiness, makes me yearn more and more for the holiness that I will receive when he comes. Do you yearn for that holiness? Do you yearn for the perfection that comes when we will be with Christ forever? Increasing holiness in the light of Christ's return fills us with a hope of resurrection to be with Christ forever so that life now is not meaningless and it is the hope that when Christ returns we will be made perfect the work he began in us being made complete and with a new capacity to enjoy his presence, we will, along with all the saints, be with him forever and ever with increasing joy and delight. How do we apply this truth? Well, just as Paul did in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. As we share life's frustrations and difficulties with one another, remind each other that Christ is coming back. Encourage one another to persevere in holiness, in all the practicalities of that, remembering that it's not meaningless and that Christ will return. God's will for your life is increasing holiness in the hope of Christ's return. So let's encourage one another in the pursuit of holiness, reminding each other that Jesus is coming back. Let's pray.
Father, what a privilege it is to be called your children and to bear your name. Lord, help us as we seek to please you by living holy lives in dependence on your Spirit. We can't possibly begin to live out your commands without your help. And Father, for those of us who have some difficult decisions to make in this coming week, Lord, would you give them courage and boldness to stand fast to the truth and to choose the path that pleases you, even if it means difficulties. And Lord, as your Holy Spirit is at work in our church, we ask that, you would, that we would see our church abounding in love for one another and overflowing to other churches and other people. Help us to live for your glory in our workplaces, in our schools, and fill us with a hope as we look forward to Jesus' return in power. In whose name we pray. Amen.